Throughout history, men have constructed various ways to try to stay protected. In medieval days, they built castles to stay protected. When the Jamestown settlers came to the shores of Virginia, they built a fort for protection. Today, we employ a military and satellites in order to stay protected. But what about our souls? How do our souls stay protected? How does the real you and I deep on the inside, how do we stay protected? So many times in life we try to construct apparatuses around us in order to stay protected. Sometimes we try to stay protected by withdrawing from people and withdrawing from situations that seem unsafe. Often we, if we don't realize that we stay on the run in life trying to get away from situations or from people that seem unsafe. Sometimes we go into massive amounts of denial about situations or people around us that seem dangerous because it's all in an effort to try to protect ourselves. But in the Psalm 3, the psalmist David writes in a crisis time of his life and he says that the Lord is our protector. If you'll turn with me there to the third psalm, and he talks about how the Lord protects us and acts to protect us. And instead of us being in denial, instead of us disengaging from life, instead of us running from people and running from situations, we need to look to the Lord and see and take advantage of how He protects us. Now, I'm beginning a series of messages today that we'll be going through during the month of November entitled, Thank God. And we're going to look at different aspects of who God is from the book of Psalms. And today it's thank God for how He is our protector. Now allow me to give you the context of the third psalm. The third psalm was written during a time of severe crisis in David's life. David had taken Israel to the very zenith of its power. Greatest military power of its day. He was the greatest king known in the world at that time. But David had a crisis going on in the kingdom. His son Absalom had decided that he wanted to be king. And he didn't want to wait for his dad to die and for the throne to be passed to him. So he decided to incite a rebellion against his dad and take over the kingdom. 2 Samuel 15 is the story of how Absalom behind his dad's back, begins to gather a group of fellow rebellious spirits with him. And that group grows larger and larger. And then in Jerusalem, the capital city, they burst onto the scene. David realizes that not only is his reign at stake, his very life is at stake. And so David takes his army, which is very small at that time, and he literally runs out of Jerusalem and he flees. And we think this psalm was written the second morning after him fleeing Jerusalem. He is out now waiting in anticipation that his son with his large army of insurrectionists is going to come after him and literally try to kill him and destroy him. You know, it's bad enough you've got a rebellion going on when your own son is leading the rebellion. It makes it even worse, heartbreaking. And so he writes this psalm in the morning, we believe, after having fled Jerusalem. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising up against many. Many are saying of my soul, 
there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Now, you'll notice that three times in this psalm the term Selah is used. We're not exactly sure what that term means. As best we can tell, it was a musical note because this third psalm is poetry that was set to music. And we think that it is a musical note that marks a crescendo in how you would have sung it. And the idea is to ask the question every time you see it, what do you think of that? In other words, Paul, stop, what do you think of that? Where he says in verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation, there is no help for him in God. Then he pauses, think about that. I have no help in God. That's what they're saying to me. Verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah, stop, think about that. They said I didn't have any help in God. But I called to the Lord, and He has answered me out of this holy hill, out of this place of power. Stop and think about that. And the idea of this term is three times over, stop, pause, dwell on this, think about this. Let it saturate deep into your soul. You see, the only way that God's truth is going to change us and impact us is to give it time to sink into our souls, into who we are, to saturate our being, our thinking. Now, first of all, you'll notice that he describes the enemy that he's facing. Verse 1, he says, many are my foes. The idea of the word foe there is literally I've got all stuff, kinds of people and stuff coming at me, and it is backing me into a wall, into a narrow place. And so David is saying, I am literally backed up into a tough place in life. I feel like I'm getting suffocated by life, that the walls are coming in closer and closer in on me. Have you ever been in a place in life that you just feel like where you look in life, people, situations, circumstances, whatever, is just closing in on you tighter and tighter and tighter? You feel like you can't get your breath? Well, that's what David is saying here. Life is just collapsing in on me right now. Next phrase, he says, many are rising up against me. When you read over in 2 Samuel chapter 15, David's army was getting smaller by the hour and Absalom's army was getting bigger by the hour. And so every time David cast an eye over Jerusalem and his son's army that he knew was coming after him, that army just seemed to be getting people, more and more people, and his army got smaller and smaller. Now, if you're David and you're a servant of the Lord, you're starting to ask God after a while, God, why is the enemy army getting bigger and why is my army getting smaller? It looks like to me it ought to be working the other way around. So David is saying the foes are getting bigger and bigger. Now, verse 2, he says, Many 
are saying in my soul, there is no help for him in God. Now they were saying that for several reasons. David had made some bad mistakes in life. You remember back in his life earlier, when he was a younger man, he had gone out one night on the balcony of his palace. He had looked out. He saw a young lady, Bathsheba, bathing. His glance went to a look that turned into a stare, that turned into an invitation for her to come to his bedroom. There he committed adultery with her. And that set it up a series of events in his life, both personally and in his rule and reign as king of Israel, that began almost an insidious downfall for him that set up this rebellion by Absalom. And so what's going on here is some of the people in the kingdom are saying to David, you sinned, you blew it, we're going to throw it into your face, and God is not going to help you out. You are done for. Your sin has earned you the right to be in the place that God is not going to help you out. And folks, when we sin, and all of us do, when we blow it, and all of us do, the devil is going to be more than ready to take our screw up, our mess up. I don't care if it was five minutes ago, five years ago, or 50 years ago. He is more than willing and ready to take that, to throw it up in our face, and to say to us over and over again, you don't have any chance. God has put you on the shelf, you were done, and you were through, and now you're going to reap the results of it. And that is exactly what the people are saying to him. You have no help from God. They're also saying to him, look at the kingdom that's coming against you. Look at the army that's coming against you. Look at your own son that's coming against you. You don't have any help in God. You know, I think the toughest opposition to deal with in life is family opposition. When your family, when your own blood is turning against you, and that is exactly where David is in this situation. And he's feeling all isolated from God. Verse 2, this is, there is no salvation for him in God. There's no hope of deliverance, no hope of rescue, no hope of victory. Now notice G-O-D there. It is the name of God, Elohim. It speaks of the majesty of God, the strength of God, the power of God. And what he's saying is, David, you're done for. You have no hope of God's strength, no hope of His majesty, no hope of His power. Your soul has had it. God has turned His back on you. And the fact that you've got an army led by your son that's breathing down your throat is proof that you are isolated, you're all alone, and you don't have any hope. The biggest lie that Satan will try to pull off on you and me is that God doesn't love us anymore, God doesn't care about us anymore, and we are all isolated and alone. Because if you and I reach a place deep inside of us that we are convinced that God doesn't love us, God doesn't care about us, and we're alone, that we don't have any hope. And Satan will do everything he can to get you and I to that place to feel like that we are totally isolated from God, that we are totally alone. And that is exactly what they are pounding into David. You are alone, you're isolated, you don't have a chance, God has turned his back on you. Now the second half of this psalm is where David gets his answer from God. And what David does 
is he leans hard into the promises of God and into the person of God. I want you to write that down. He leans hard into the promises of God and into the person of God. You see, what the enemy is trying to do is to get him to lean into the lies. God has turned his back on you. You are alone and isolated. What David is going to do here is he's going to lean into the promises of God and into the person of God. If you and I lean into the lies and start believing them, we're going to give up and give out. If we start leaning into the promises of God and into the character of God, then we've got more than a fighting chance to get through the battle. Verse 3. David calls out on the Lord and he says, O Lord, capital L-O-R-D, when you see Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, it is the covenant name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. Now we're not exactly sure how that name was pronounced because the pronunciation of it was lost in antiquity because the Jews considered God's name, his personal covenant name, too holy to be spoken. We think it may have been pronounced either Jehovah or Yahweh. And he is saying, O Yahweh. Now, it's the covenant name of God. Now, what is, what is the significance of that? When God came to his people to set himself in relationship with them and to commit himself unconditionally to them, he gave them this personal name, the name Yahweh. So when David says, O Lord, what David is saying is, God, you committed yourself to me. You promised you would have my back. You promised you would be there for me. And so, God, I am leaning into and I am living out of your covenant with me. Now, folks, I can't say this strong enough. When Jesus sat down with the 12 disciples the night before he was crucified, he looked into the eyes of a bunch of guys who had failed, who would fail, who were screwed up, who were messed up, that he had called to be his followers, and he said, this is my new what? covenant in my blood that I am making with you. What is Jesus saying to them and what is he saying to us? When you feel like God is, you feel like you're buying into that lie that you're all alone and you're isolated and God's turned his back on you, look the devil in the face, look the lie in the face and say, I am in the new covenant with Jesus and that covenant was sealed on the cross by his blood 2,000 years ago and nothing can change that. That's what I'm living in. That's what I'm living out of. That's my peace. That's my strength. That's my power. The person of Jesus, the character of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus, and you can't get any better than that. Oh Lord, he says, you are my strength. Now notice what he says in verse 3. You are my shield. The word shield there means to be protected on the front, on the back, on the top, and below. It means a circumference all around you and I of protection. God says when He protects us, He just builds protection all around us. You are my shield. Now the other idea behind shield here is of the scaly hide of a crocodile. Now, if you allow me for a moment, I did some study yesterday on a crocodile's hide, okay? So I want to share with you what I uncovered about a crocodile's hide because that's the idea here about him being our shield. If you take a crocodile and you look at the bony exoskeleton that is around, it is tough, 
It protects the inner organs of the crocodile and it is so designed to interface with itself so that nothing can penetrate it. Now, crocodiles love to pick fights with other crocodiles. I mean, you think they come after humans, and they come after a human is just to have you for dinner, all right? But if they go after another crocodile, it's because they're going to have a fight. They don't need to know they don't need to fight with us. We don't have anything to defend ourselves with anyway, so we're history. But if you go after another crocodile, they will get into a fight with each other, and they fight each other with their teeth. And so if you examine the back of a crocodile, there's a good chance you will find teeth marks on the hide, on the back of the crocodile, which are the teeth marks of the crocodile that he last fought. Now follow me on what I'm about to say. You get this crocodile that's got the teeth marks on it. But the teeth marks are on the back of the crocodile. You don't find teeth marks in the inner organs of the crocodile because that bony exoskeleton has been a shield, a protector in battle. God never promised that we wouldn't face battles. But what he did say is that when you face the battle, I'll be a shield all around you. He didn't promise that we wouldn't come out of the battles without some teeth marks on us, but what he did say is when I am your shield, you'll have some teeth marks on you from the battle, but you won't have teeth marks in you from the battle. The vitals of who you are will not be touched. So we may come out of the battles of life with some teeth marks on us. And some of you listen to me this morning and you're saying, I got teeth marks all over me. In fact, usually the older we get, the more teeth marks we've got. But it's not how many teeth marks you got on you, it's making sure you don't have any teeth marks in you. And what he's saying is that he is our shield. He keeps those teeth marks from being in us. Now, how do we know when the teeth when the shield hadn't been there and the tooth of the enemy has penetrated us. Let me tell you how we know that. Two major ways. Number one, we develop bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. When I get penetrated by the teeth marks of the enemy and the wounding is there and he hasn't been my shield, I'm going to start demonstrating that with bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. The second is fear. We get hurt. We anticipate we're going to get hurt. We get scared. Even when we don't want to admit it, we get scared. The Bible says fear has torment. When He is our shield all around us, He is protecting us from that. Notice verse 3. You are my glory. The Lord is heavy with honor. He is the focus of my life. The enemy is defeated when our focus is on the Lord and He is our glory instead of our focus being on the enemy. And the temptation in battle is to focus on the enemy and not on the Lord. You get so consumed with who's attacking us or what's coming at us that we stop focusing on Him. But David says, He is my glory. Now follow me on this. 
David had been the king of Israel. You talk about someone who knew glory. He was the guy who was the most powerful monarch on the face of planet Earth at the time that he wrote this, and he had been displaced by Absalom, his son. David realized, I can't trust my glory. My power, my influence, my abilities, my gifts didn't do a blooming thing for me to help me stay in Jerusalem and stay king. So Lord, I'm not leaning into my glory, I'm leaning into your glory. And if we're not careful sometimes in life, we get in those places we get real comfortable and we start enjoying our glory and we start feeling good about our glory and people are applauding us about our glory, that's a dangerous place to be. Because when I get wrapped up in my glory, I'm not wrapped up in His glory. When I'm focusing on my glory, I'm not focusing on His glory and the enemy is going to take us out and take us down. But when I say Jesus and Jesus only is my glory, He is the one that I'm going to focus on. He's the one I'm leaning into, not me. He is my glory. Now notice verse 3. It says that He is the lifter of my head. It's the idea that when you get discouraged, what do we do? We drop our head. Look down. It says that He reaches out and He lifts our head up. He is the lifter of my head. He's the lifter of my head. And notice when David is saying this. David is saying he is the lifter of my head when the enemy is coming after me. Now David had known what it was for God to lift his head when he had sinned and messed up. David had known what it was for God to lift his head when he'd been a nobody and he became the king of Israel and became a somebody. But he had never known what it was for the Lord to lift his head when he had been a somebody and people were coming after him and knocking him down. And folks, when we experience the forgiveness of God, we know what it is for him to lift our head. When God takes us from a place of insignificance to a place of significance, we know what it is for him to lift our head. But it's an entirely different place when we've been up here and we've got everything knocked out from underneath of us and we're now down here and we're depending on God to reach out and to lift up our head. We haven't sinned, we haven't messed up, etc. But we've had the enemy coming after us with everything and what it takes in that point and that time to have our head lifted up by him. He lifts up my head. Several years ago, I was interviewing when we were living in Chesapeake. I had a summer jobs program I ran for inner city teenagers. And I'll never forget the day I was sitting in, in Digstown. We'd been there to do our Southampton Roads mission project and had a young man who I think was a freshman or sophomore in high school at the time who came in for the job interview. And he walked in and I said hi to him and he didn't give me any eye contact and he sat down and I began to ask him questions. You know, why do you want this job and why should I hire you, etc. And he sat there throughout the entire interview and stared at the floor. I couldn't get him to make eye contact with me and at first I didn't hire him because he showed absolutely no self-confidence whatsoever. And I thought, I don't need a guy working for me this summer who can't even look me in the eye. He just goes around staring in the floor all the time. I bump into people or whatever because he never looks up. And uh, one of the boys uh, didn't turn out in the program, so I went to him and I said, hey, I'm going to give you a chance, going to hire you. 
And it was fascinating to watch that young man all summer because he, he started out, I mean, never could have eye contact with you, always staring down. But as the summer began to progress and his self-confidence began to get better, I noticed that he began to maintain eye contact. He began looking at us. And at the end of the summer, I sat down with him and I looked at him and I said, listen, when I interviewed you, you spent the whole interview, initial interview, staring at the floor. You would never look me in the eye. I said, you don't have anything to be ashamed of. I've watched what you've got inside of you this summer. I've watched how you've worked your job. Start looking people in the eye. Start looking up. You have no reason to look down. And folks, what Satan does with us is he loves to beat us down so that we don't want to look life in the eye. We give up, we are defeated, we have headed. And he's saying he's the lifter of my head. He has reached into my life and he has lifted my head up. Some of you that listen to me this morning, you've had some situations in your life that have beat you down. You don't think you're worth serving the Lord. God's got any time for you. You don't think you put one foot in front of the other and accomplish anything. And you've tried to lift your own head up and you can't do it. You had other people who were supposed to lift your head up and done nothing but take your head and push it down. Start looking to Jesus because Jesus likes to lift people's heads up. He likes to give you confidence because He loves you. He's in your life. He's got a future. He's got a plan for you. He wants to breathe His strength and His power and His glory into your life. Let Him lift your head up. Verse 4, He says, I cried to the Lord. Now the word cry there means that I addressed by name to a key word here, specific person, and I expect a specific response. David is saying, I cried to the Lord I, gave, I addressed God specifically, and I told God specifically what I wanted. And notice what he, he says God did in response to that. He said, He answered me from His holy hill. Now, the holy hill is the place of His power. He says, He answered me. He paid attention to me. He answered me. David said, I got a response. Now, follow what, I'm, what he's saying here in verse 4. David is saying, I went to the Lord, and I cried out to God. I leaned into Him. I cried out to Him. I want you to write this down. I'm telling you all this stuff to write down, and, but I, I'm telling that because I just want you to remember it, okay? It is one thing to cry in life. It is something else to cry out to the Lord. You see, too many of us are going through life, and we spend a lot of time crying but we're crying to each other, we're crying to ourselves, we're not crying to God. And the reason we just circle down and circle down and circle down is as long as I'm crying and I'm not crying out to God, I'm not going to go anywhere but stew in my mess all the time. That's why we go from one set of misery to another set of misery to another set of misery and nothing ever seems to get better. Because as long as I'm just crying, I'm not going anywhere. But when I start crying to the Lord, I'm saying, God... I'm crying to you, I'm focusing on you, I'm coming to you with the issue, the problem, the hurt, or whatever, and I am asking you to get involved in this, I'm asking you to do something, I'm asking God for an answer, and I'm asking you to give me an answer now. And David said, I cry to the Lord, and when you and I cry to God, we get a hearing, and we get a response. We got to be open and receptive to whatever the response is. But he says, God heard me from his holy hill. That's the place of power. 
Notice what kind of hill it is. It's a holy hill. When God hears you, you're going to get a response from God. You're going to get a response that's got two aspects to it. It's going to be a powerful response, and it's going to be a holy response, okay? God's responses are always powerful, and God's responses are always holy. You're going to get a holy response from him. Notice what David says happened. He says, God sustained me. The word there means to lean upon, to take hold of. He says, I love what he says here. He says, I decided I was going to go to sleep, and I laid down. And I laid down last night, and I knew that Absalom's got his army coming in my direction. But I laid down, and I went to sleep. And the reason I laid, went to sleep, when I knew I had thousands of people not a, but a few miles away who would hang me out to dry and kill me, etc. The reason I could lay down and go to sleep last night is not because I took the right medication to do it, not because I'm in denial, but because I knew that when I closed my eyes, God was sustaining me. Let me illustrate the sustaining power of God in two ways. About uh, be two years ago this March, I got up one morning. We were living in Chesapeake at the time, and we lived in a rancher house, and the bedrooms were on one end, and the living room and the kitchen, and my son's bedroom and the bathroom that he used were on the end of the house. And I was in the bedroom getting dressed. And those of you that are married are going to understand what I'm about to talk about. If you're married and got kids, you'll understand this. My wife yelled my name. Now, Helen and I have been married at that time for about 26 years. But when my wife has a certain sound in her voice, I know it's trouble. And she had a tone in her voice that I didn't need to know what was going down, but I knew something was not good that was going down in our home. So I ran down the hallway, and when I got into the living room, Helen looked at me and she said, Jonathan has passed out in the bathroom. And I ran with her to the bathroom, and he was laying out on the floor in the bathroom. And uh, I reached down, and we set him up, and he began to get consciousness. And then I said, well, can you think you could make it into the guest bedroom? And he says, I'll try. And we got into the living room area, and he said, Dad, I'm going down again. So we went down in the floor a second time. And uh, then we got him up, and we got him in the guest bedroom, started giving him some water to drink, etc. I made a decision we were going to the emergency room as fast as we could get there. And so my, my son at that time was about 23 years old, and I said, uh, let's head out to the hospital. And I said, how do you need me to help you? And he said, you're going to have to hold me up to get me to the car. Now, my son is 23 years old at the time. He is very healthy. So when he is telling me i got to hold him up to get him to the car, I know he is experiencing some major weakness. So we went out the door, and I had one arm locked around him. He had his arm locked around me. And basically, I was having to provide about 75% of the strength to get him out of the house and into the car to get us to the hospital. When he says here that the Lord says, I'm going to sustain you, what he is saying here is there are going to be days in your life, God says, I understand that you can't stay on your own two feet. That you're just going to pass out on the floor. And God is saying, I want you to understand that on those days you cry out to me, I will put an arm around you, you put an arm around me, and I will keep you on, the feet, on your feet and I will keep you in the game. 75 or whatever much strength you need, 
is available to you in Jesus. Just let me carry you. Just let me hold you. Just let me wrap my strong, eternal arms around you and I will get you through this. He will sustain us. Now the other illustration I want to use is have you ever had your blood sugar go down on you? Particularly if you're diabetic, you know what that's like. It ain't no fun. You, you feel bad. My son worked for Chick-fil-A for a number of years. Jonathan told me, he said, Daddy, he said, when people come in here, they are hungry. He says, their brains just shut down on them. He said, they come in here to Chick-fil-A and order a hamburger. <laughs> and I have to tell them, we don't sell hamburgers. And then when you eat, what do you feel like? 15. But if your blood sugar starts, whole new person. The idea here of the Lord sustaining you is that God is going to give you the strength that you need from deep down.